This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. A nun, an all-knowing AI, the Holy Grail, a secret society of women, and a falafel shop. These are just some of the many elements that collide in the messy, delightful, joyfully silly Mrs. Davis, the new Peacock series about basically everything. Starring Betty Gilpin from GLOW and co-created by talent from Lost, The Leftovers, and The Big Bang Theory, Mrs. Davis lives up to all the chaotic premise of that lineup. I'm Glenn Weldon. And I'm Linda Holmes. And today we're talking about Mrs. Davis on Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History, from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. What does it mean to be black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as black experiences, you'll hear, it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcast. It's just me and Glenn today. I'm going to tell you right off the top, Mrs. Davis is a show that we both love, that we're very excited to talk to you about. As we tape this, most of the episodes have aired. We're going to talk some about them. We're going to try not to give away all of the show's many surprises, even though giving all of them away would be practically impossible considering the speed with which they arrive and the complexity of trying to give details about them. So, Betty Gilpin plays Simone, a nun in a near future where she's one of the few people skeptical about the omniscient AI known as Mrs. Davis, who lives in the earbuds and the phones of practically everybody around her. Simone finds herself pressured to communicate with Mrs. Davis, and Simone ultimately learns that she has a mission. Well, she has two missions. One comes from Mrs. Davis, and one comes from God, and they both have to do with the Holy Grail, so basic stuff. At the same time, she also reconnects with her ex, a shaggy, shady guy named Wiley, played by Jake McDormand, and hangs out in a falafel shop with Jay, played by Andy McQueen. Jay is both very personally dear to her and very important to her faith, since we learn a few episodes in that he is actually Jesus. Simone is also working through her feelings about her childhood and her parents, played by Elizabeth Marvel and David Arquette. Wiley is allied with a very goofy Australian, played by the always goofy Chris Diamantopoulos, who's helping him with his own project to fight back against Mrs. Davis's supremacy over everyone. This probably already sounds like a very silly and overcranked plot. You can believe it only becomes more so as the show unfolds, which you might expect from a show associated with Damon Lindelof. He worked on Lost and The Leftovers and Watchmen. He co-created this series with Tara Hernandez, who previously worked on The Big Bang Theory. 
Mrs. Davis is streaming now on Peacock. We want to dive right in and talk about it. Glenn, what was it about this show that grabbed you? You said it. Uh, it gets silly. It gets big. I love how big and how silly it gets. I love how unafraid of silly it is. Um, yeah. We get German thugs in episode one that are giving you flea in Big Lebowski. And I'm like, sure, let's do it. Why not? Go there. <laughs> It's also, I didn't realize how big a factor this is until after the fact, but like it's impossible to compare this to anything else. And Linda, for people like us who consume as much media as we do in an environment where what thrives is what's familiar and linear for a lot of very boring, you know, risk averse financial bottom line reasons, that turns out to be a huge thing. It's a big swing and it keeps on swinging away even in the last episode when you keep thinking they're going to wrap this up, right? And nope, more swings. We're getting more swings. Okay. Uh-huh. I am just resolutely here for the entirety of it. Yeah. I got to say, like, when I first started watching it, I was like, I don't know about this. This seems awfully kind of. I don't know if I want to say like showy mm-hmm. or try hard. It seems try hard <laughs> and it is try hard. Everybody in it is trying incredibly hard. You know, Betty Gilpin is one of the reasons why I think it works so well. She is such a grounding human presence in this really wacky thing. I also really want to say, you know, Jake McDormand is a guy that when I saw him, I thought, what do I know this guy from? And then I looked him up and I was like, oh, he's a guy in things. Yeah. He's been a perfectly good guy in things. But in this, I think he's sexy. He's funny. He's very well matched to her. There are some very interesting insights in this show about what exactly his role in all of this is. Who is he to her and who is he in the grand scheme of things? One of the reasons why one of the few kind of things that emerges that I mentioned is that Jay is Jesus is that I also really think that that Andy McQueen performance as Jesus is such a, an interesting one because he is tasked with the almost impossible uh-huh. role of being, on the one hand, sort of her, one of her love interests, and on the other hand, believably Jesus. Why did you become a nun, Simone? Because I fell in love with you. And what did you say when I proposed to you? I said, my dad will pay for the wedding if yours covers the rehearsal dinner. (laughs) I think the way that they finesse that, and, you know, I don't want to give this part away, but, like, the way they eventually resolve that and why he's there and what's going on with him brings the question of her faith down to this very concrete, level. Yeah. You know, when people talk about their relationship with God, it can get very heady. It can get very abstract. This is a way of talking about somebody's relationship with their faith in a way that's a lot more literal, Mm -hmm. which on the one hand can seem sort of corny, but on the other hand, I actually think takes them to some really interesting places about the difference between romantic and sort of carnal relationships and faith relationships and what is enriching to you. I just think that stuff is so interesting, even though so much of what kind of mainstream storytelling does with faith is not always interesting to me. Mm -hmm. No, I agree. 
I mean, to pitch the show as like it's faith versus science is kind of a dodge because, you it know, uh, someone once famously remarked that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And man, we see it. Yeah. Like it is treated as objective reality here. And I, when you manifest faith as objective reality, that ain't faith. It works dramatically here, as you say. But I don't really think this show is saying much about the nature of faith. Now, the notion that technology can offer people the kind of comfort they'd otherwise find in religion, that is a much more interesting idea. That is a much stickier idea. And it does get poked at here. But the fact is, there is so much going on in this show in any given episode, any given scene, any given second, that you can go entire scenes, almost half an episode before you remember, oh, yeah, an artificial intelligence has pretty much taken over the planet. So yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's a balancing act. But I think they strike it. Yeah. I actually liked, I think, what it has to say about Faith more than you did. You're absolutely right that because she gets to see these kind of literal translations of her faith into physical and, and literal reality, it's not faith in the same way that we typically think about it. Mm -hmm. But I think what they're trying to get at is what is her relationship with faith? Like, how does she think about what do I get from it? What do I rely on it for? How much am I willing to give up for faith? And even though, I mean, there's a literal version of it, but also he, it's kind of a vision to mm -hmm. her, right? And so I think it's still faith to me. And I'm more interested in that part of it than I think you are. But I think what we both agree on is that it packs so much in here that it's just a really interesting show to think about. And it's interesting to sort of put as much comedy and goofiness in something that I also think like has some things to say about what's the balance of the benefits. You know, there are people here who speak up for the benefits of an AI mm. that has kind of taken over the world and the things that it allows to happen. And I love that. And at the same time, you get like Margot Martindale. You sure. get, you know, as I said, Diamantopoulos, as I texted to one of my friends, Diamantopoulos in the Diamantopoulos role. Sure. And I don't know whether that's because it's written that way or because once you see him in something, it's only him who could ever do that thing. Yeah. How much do you know? About Mrs. Davis? Don't give it a name! No one calls Facebook Doug. No one calls Twitter Mary Lou. No one calls them anything because no one uses them anymore. They use it. And it's not a person. It's code. It just feels like nobody except him could do that. Same with Elizabeth Marvel. I think Elizabeth Marvel as her mother once you've seen that performance, seems like the only person who could have done it. Absolutely. And I think the casting is huge here. I mean, I, I went into this knowing nothing except Betty Gilpin. Right. As a performer, in every role she plays, she radiates intelligence. Like, she can go for a laugh. She's got great comic timing. She's got dramatic chops. Her characters have this grounded quality, this watchfulness. How did you find me, Lizzie? Not Lizzie anymore. And uh, you left the water bill for this place in your bike. It wasn't easy that I was able to decode with the naked eye just the address that's printed right here on the front. It's self-aware. It's not self-conscious, but self-aware. They sound like a synonym, but they're not. But like, that is exactly what you need in something that's flying in as many different directions as this is. This is a widening gyre. She is the center. She's holding. And as you say, I thought her, her chemistry with uh, the actor playing Wiley, uh, Jake McDormand, now that's a guy who wasn't on my radar at all. And and this is ungenerous, but when it began, I was kind of worried because there is a breed in the world of 
kind of bohunk, soap opera hot actors who kind of cruise by on abs and facial symmetry. But from the jump, he is leaning into this character's goofiness. He is carrying around with him in every scene this kind of puffed up prison of masculinity that you can tell he's trying to escape from. <laughs> and and that's, I think, the secret to the show. It is a combination of writing, directing, and casting. This show gives room for its lead actors and also its secondary actors, but this show gives room for its lead actors to make character actor choices. Mm. It trusts its actors to go big, to go for broke in choices that always, always, always pay off. Yeah. I really like the way that it will build up a thing that you understand as a dynamic or as a moment and then go back and provide context that kind of explains it better as an actual story point. Mm -hmm. You know, you mentioned the ending and how they continue. We're not obviously going to say anything about the ending because it's not released as of when we're taping this. But my description of this was this is one of those shows that kind of crashes through the finish line going way too fast and like stands up with one ski on and one <laughs> ski off and just jumps up and goes, ta-da, it was fun though, right? And I, I still feel that way. Like, I think when you get to the end, you have to be like, no, wait a minute. <laughs> I'm yep. not sure that I followed every bit of this in a literal way or that this is the way I would have written every single element of it. What do you think about kind of the feel of how it ends? As that episode is coming in the last 15, 10 minutes. You're like, there's no way, there's no way, there's no way. The only way it could work is if they bring the, back this thing from episode one that I know they're not, oh, there it is. Yeah. <laughs> and so I, it worked for me. I mean, totally, not totally, but I mean, enough. It worked enough for me that I don't want another season. I don't. I, no. this is good. This, we're good. We're good. I have a question for you, though. Yeah. Look, there's a lot more in the show than the Simone Wiley relationship. There's pretty much everything in the world plus uh -huh, the Simone. Uh -huh, uh -huh. But there is something throwback in that relationship, right? We don't make that kind of thing anymore. This is kind of like a gender-flipped romancing the stone. You know a hell of a lot more about Scarecrow and Mrs. King than I do, but there's some of that vibe there. Maybe gender-flipped, maybe inverted, but like there's yeah. – it felt old school to me. It does. There is a way in which this is calling on traditions of kind of – you know, and obviously very heteronormative in the in the history of TV and film that have been mainstream. But there is a kind of a like boy and girl solve mysteries and mm -hmm. have it go on adventures. And there's a road trip element of this. There's a video game element of this sure. where you sort of have to get the this to go to the there. And then mm -hmm. you take this to the that guy. And Romancing the Stone is a great comparison because you do see that kind of, you know, we have a mission and we're going to go out and we're going to bicker along the way. And obviously we have all these feelings and, you know, I'll rescue you and you rescue me. And absolutely, I think you're right that there's something throwback about it. And it's interesting that that sits in the middle of this really strange project in almost every other way. Because I agree with you. I think their dynamic is quite traditional in that way. Yep. You alluded to this earlier, but like, I feel like my reaction to this show speaks to my hunger for things that feel ambitious. Yeah. I also think it's reductive to say, well, Little Love did this and Hernandez did that. Right. There are big ideas throughout and Little Love is actually very funny, but there is a comforting steady rhythm within these big ideas, but in their dialogue, in the, in the rhythm of the dialogue, there's a setup punchline, setup punchline thing that really works. And, you know, Betty Gilpin can wring laughs out of a reaction, you know, like, uh, is this, is this, what's that mustache for? Like, uh, like things oh, like definitely. that, it's driving it. I said in the review, it feels like it's eager to tell you the story. And part of that is the rhythm of these individual scenes and the dialogue that just keeps punching forward 
amid these big ideas. Usually you get one or the other. Here we get both. And I, I, I love that. Yeah. I mean, a lot of times I think people don't always understand how much a show like this, even though it's very ambitious and weird, benefits from basic lessons in how to make television yeah. that have been learned by people like her in all the time she spent on The Big Bang Theory and Young Sheldon, but also him not just going back to Lost and The Leftovers and all that stuff, but he worked on like Nash Bridges, sure. like along with half of Hollywood. And I think that having that background in television that maybe doesn't feel wildly ambitious, but it's executed, can absolutely be a prelude to television that is ambitious and weird and rule-breaking and all that stuff. So I also like this as an example of like, you never know where a career is going to end up because Lindelof obviously has had successes and non-successes and people who find him incredibly frustrating. I tend to like the Lindelovian. I have no chance of actually getting my arms around all these ideas, mm -hmm. but I'm really trying because I'm curious about them. And I think it winds up being an ambitious show that is made by people who have a good grounding in making TV. Yep. <laughs> and I think that's partly why I think the episodes are are well structured. As much as it feels like a sprawling thing, the episodes each also have a like, this is the episode where this happens. Yep. This is the episode where this happens. And they play out in that way as television, not as a an eight-hour movie. Eight movie. It's supposed to, you know, they're supposed to be episodes, and I think they hold up as episodes. The only issue I have with this series is how many key scenes depend upon the notion that someone's just going to offer up their nasty, crusty earbud to somebody else like that. Yeah. Amid all of the whales and the heists and the whale heists, that's what strange credulity for me, because it's, ma'am, put that thing away. I'm going to slap it to the ground. Your phone has a speaker. Let's do uh -huh. that. Instead of creating a public health nightmare. Just put it on speaker. Thank you very much. That was really the only thing, but it turned out it kept happening. Yeah. And like, I realize I'm taking your point farther than it perhaps needs, but I mean, I do think there's a sense in this that one of the things that makes this AI powerful is that the custom is the AI delivers itself via a human being. Mm. And if it's like a person who doesn't have their earbud in, you deliver it in the case of a kindergarten teacher who speaks the Mrs. Davis stuff through herself. Okie dokie. It's simple. She'll speak to me through here, and then I'll just repeat whatever she says. So it'll feel like you're talking to me, but actually you're talking to her. Does that make sense? Yeah, like a ventriloquist dummy. Well, that's not very nice, Simone. The concept of this AI is that it's delivered to you in a way that feels kind of fuzzy and nice, mm -hmm. and it's a woman, like a lot of automated voices that really exist in the world, Siri and Alexa and others. And even if you're getting it third hand, you're going to get the voice of a human being. The scene with the kindergarten teacher, that's a great acting piece because she is hearing yeah. something being said and then uh, she is reacting to it before she says it. There's, that's a really good moment. The other thing is the notion that an AI would take over the world, not through, you know, seizing military power, but through offering people comfort and advice. That makes mm -hmm. sense to me. <laughs> Yeah. That, that, I think, is a really smart way in to the show. Yeah. And I also like the way in that kindergarten teacher scene, the way it's shot, you suddenly go into these very direct straight to camera, mm -hmm. you know, the kindergarten teacher straight to camera, Betty Gilpin straight to camera. The Jonathan Demme. Which yeah. is sort of the traditional way of giving you that direct communication idea. So I, I like the way it's shot. I think they handle it really well. I think the locations look great. Yeah, There's right? some wonderful sort of 
I don't know, out on the road, going through different towns. And there's still a lot about this show I don't understand. Yep. I'll just say, I don't understand all the stuff with the Pope. I'm not sure. I got a little lost. I'm saying there's a whole fake Pope sub, 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 subplot. Yeah. <laughs> that is just, it's part of the background noise. Yeah. It's like, I'm not sure I understood the part with the Pope, but that's okay. Sure. That's okay. I really very much enjoyed it. As we said, most of the episodes of this, as as you're hearing this, are available. There will be eight, ultimately. It is safe to say... We want to know what you think about Mrs. Davis. Find us at facebook.com slash PCHH. That brings us to the end of our show. Glenn, thank you so much for being here to discuss this show that we both love. Thank you, pal. This episode was produced by Mike Katzif and edited by Jessica Reedy. Hello, Come In provides our theme music. Thank you for listening to Pop Culture Happy Hour from NPR. I'm Linda Holmes, and we'll see you all tomorrow. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore, a new perspective on performance apparel. Clothing designed with premium fabrics, built to move in, styled for life. For 20% off your first purchase, go to viore.com NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. That's the voice of Miss Gloria Jones, the original artist behind the song Tainted Love. But I don't think she's ever gotten the credit she deserves. I could not agree more. So let's shed some light on the untold story of Tainted Love. On Lost Notes from KCRW, part of the NPR Podcast Network.